Welcome, everybody. I'm excited to be back with you tonight. Um, next week, my dad will be back, still in the book of Acts, but I'm thrilled to get another week with you all. We're going to do chapter 13 tonight together, but before we get going, I wanted to give you guys an update. Um, I got a picture this morning uh, for you guys. This is my parents on the Mount of Olives, and so you can see in the background, hopefully you can see the gold dome right over his left shoulder. That is the Temple Mount. So that is the dome of the rock that sits on the Temple Mount. And the cool thing about this, and this has nothing to do with Acts, this is just, just for free, uh, where they're standing is a really cool story. There's a ravine behind them, as you can see, that goes down, and then you go up to the Temple and there's this interplay in the Bible, and you might look for this as you read the Gospels in the Old Testament, of people going up and down that valley. We remember in the Old Testament that on that same hill that runs behind them, Abraham sacrificed his, here he's going to sacrifice his son, and the Lord provided a sacrifice. We remember that David, when he was a king, his son came to Jerusalem and he wanted to kill him. He wanted to be the king. And David, it says, walks up that hill weeping with his head covered, praising God, hoping that he would be restored. And then in the Gospels, finally, we read of Jesus sitting on this very hill, looking towards the temple and weeping for Jerusalem, and then walking down that hill and making everything right again with the people of God. It's a cool place, and they're having a great time. And I think when they come back, they'll be able to share a little bit about that trip. So I appreciate you guys praying for them. And um, as we're going to pray here in a minute, praying for me as we open the word together. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for tonight. We just thank you for the opportunity. Every time we get to open your word, Lord, we know that you're doing something. Lord, you tell us that your word doesn't re return void. And God, we know that doesn't mean that it accomplishes the purpose that we want all of the time, but it accomplishes the purpose that you want all the time. And so, Lord, we lay our hearts open before you tonight. Lord, we want to engage our minds as we study your word, that it would be transformative to us. God, that we would be truthful with ourselves. Lord, that we'd have the mind of Christ as we study this, and Lord, that we would love him more an hour from now than we do right now. Lord, we ask you to bring glory to yourself and to your son in this next time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, I didn't get any emails of questions, and I also didn't get any complaints. And you guys are too kind for that, but I want to reassure you that if you text in questions this week, they will get answered as many as you can. He will answer next week. But I got to wonder, last week we got cut off a little bit before the end of our story, and there is a really strange detail. So I came up with a question of my own that I wanted to throw out to you guys this week. What's with the worms at the end of our passage last week? If you read that, Herod gets eaten by worms at the end of that passage. And I wanted to share with you that not only did Herod Agrippa get eaten by worms, but his grandfather Herod, the Bible tells us, also got eaten by worms, and Antiochus Epiphanes also got eaten by worms. Coincidence? I don't think so. Look that up this week. I found there's a nice little pocket of scholarship around what those worms are, and it's super interesting. So if you're looking for something to do um, now on your phone, go ahead and do that. But I want to encourage you that when you see something in the text, and we're going to see a couple of these things tonight, when you see something in the text like that that doesn't look right, it's probably because Luke is trying to tell us something. He's trying to show us something. He's, he, he is assuming that we, as the reader, are paying attention to what he's saying. That when something is weird, we will ask, why is that there? Or when he includes a detail that seems random, we might say, I wonder why he included that. 
part of healthy reading of the Bible is to engage it, to ask questions of it. And so as we start to travel through this chapter tonight in chapter 13, one of the most important things we're going to do is not just hear the word, but we're going to ask some questions about the word. That's how we really start to pull the text apart. So our caliber of biblical study is going to be determined by the caliber of questions we ask of the text. Last week, we left our story at the end of chapter 12 in two scenes. In the first scene, we saw Barnabas, and he went to get Saul in Tarsus. And he brings him back to the church in Antioch, and it says that they began teaching there for a year. In the other scene, we left the Jerusalem church for the last time in the book of Acts. Now, you might be saying, Jerusalem shows up again in chapter 15. It does, but only in the context of Paul's ministry. We will never see Jerusalem for its own sake again in the Gospel of Acts. And so there's a big transition happening. And it coincides with the theme statement of Acts, which is Acts 1.8. It says, the Holy Spirit will come and we will have power. And you will be my witnesses to the whole world. Not just in Judea and not just in the surrounding areas, but to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses. And what we're going to read today is the beginning of the ends of the earth. So there is a, a motion in the, gospel, in the book of Acts and in the Gospels where Jerusalem starts out as the center, the only place where the gospel is being preached. And then it starts to go out. And by the end of Acts, we see that most of the known world, most of the Mediterranean area at that point has churches that have been planted there. And the first step towards doing that is going to happen in our text tonight. If you'll look with me at chapter 13, there's a nice little story at the beginning that sets the stage for everything else that's going to happen. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, we know him. Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That's our guy from last week. And Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So God is doing something in this year that Barnabas and, and Paul, Saul, who's going to be Paul for the rest of the story of Acts, were in Antioch. So they have come and they're teaching and they are preaching and they're training believers. And while they're worshiping, God speaks to them. And he says, I want you to set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have prepared for them. Now, one of the fascinating things about this is this list of people. So if you're looking at this text, you see that we've introduced three new people into the story. And I looked and looked and looked this week because I wanted to find some things out about these guys. I wanted to know, who are these guys? And unfortunately, there is nothing that we know about these three. There's nothing. And I wanted, I was like, even if there's a good conjecture or something, like give me something that maybe isn't true, but at least it's interesting. There's nothing, nothing on these guys. We just know where they're from, and we know this strange detail about this guy, Manan, who is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Actually, that word, lifelong friend, means that he was probably one of his playmates when they were little. When they were very little, they were in the same nursery together. So he grew up knowing Herod, and he grew up in a high place in society, and now he's in the church at Antioch doing the work of ministry. But I thought, isn't this kind of the point? 
I want to know something about these guys because I want to get inside what they were doing. I want to know what were the qualities that made them good at what they do? What were the things that made them stand apart from everybody else? But the point, I think, is that there's nothing. There's nothing that really separates these guys. They were doing the work of the Lord anonymously in their community. They were being obedient. They were making disciples. And one of the things we're tempted to do in the book of Acts is to take Paul and make him a superhero. And he is. I mean, he is a superhero. We're going to talk tonight about all the amazing things that Paul does. He's super Paul for the rest of Acts. But we can't skip past the point that what God is doing in Acts and what Luke is trying to show us is ordinary, everyday believers who are just taking the word of the Lord one day at a time, reaching out into their household, reaching out into their workplace, are changing the world. If we think that the story of Acts goes to show that every now and then God will raise up some super apostle and he or she will do the work of ministry, we're missing the point. The point of the book of Acts is every day, ordinary people like us possess the resources and the power and the charisma and the opportunity to change our world for Christ. And while we don't know anything about Simeon or Lucius or Manaean, we know that they were doing the work of God in their community. And it would be amazing if the same were said for us. I don't think we need anything other than that. But there's something special that happens. Paul and Barnabas are set aside for the work of ministry. Now, I promised you guys last week we are going to answer a really important question this week. And that question you're probably wondering is, what was Paul doing between chapter 9 and chapter 11 when, when Barnabas goes to get him? What was Saul doing in that time? In Acts, so the book of Acts is not uh, a day-by-day analysis of the early church. In fact, since we've seen Paul in chapter 9, there have been almost 10 years pass until this point. So this is all the 30s. All the 30s into the early 40s. Paul is nowhere to be found. Ministry is happening in Jerusalem. People are going out into the the Gentile areas, just on the fringes. Barnabas is working in Antioch, and Saul is nowhere to be found. In fact, in chapter 9, he doesn't leave on a very good note. If you remember, he converts. He has this amazing experience on the road to Damascus, and then he makes everyone angry. He makes the people in Jerusalem angry. He makes the Hellenists angry, and they're going to kill him, so the apostles lower him down a window in a basket, And they send him home. They send him, he says he goes back to his homeland in Tarsus. And then we don't hear about him again for almost 10 years. What was he doing? That question fascinates me. Well, I want to piece together what I think Paul was doing. There are three clues in Scripture that tell us what Paul was doing. And the first one comes in Galatians. And one of the reasons this is an interesting question is because when we study the book of Acts, there's a dynamic going on that we need to be aware of. Part of what we know about Paul comes from the book of Acts, and part of what we know about Paul comes from his own letters. And so when we're reading the book of Acts, or when we're reading the letters, we always have the other one in mind. So we're not just reading Acts, we're also reading Galatians, and we're also reading 2 Corinthians, we're also reading 1 Thessalonians to know what was happening in Paul's personal life. What was he saying to these churches? And in Galatians, he gives this nice autobiographical section in chapter 1. 
And Paul tells us what he did. He says, but when he who had set me apart from before I was born, that was the Lord, when he came to me and he called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. We've seen this happen in Acts chapter 9. And again, he'll tell it in 22 and 24 and again in 26. Then, after three years had passed, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And he's making this editorial comment to the Galatians. They're doubting his apostleship. He says, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. This is really important. I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. That's clue number one. Clue number one is that he goes from Jerusalem into the areas of Cilicia and Syria. And we're going to throw up a map in a second to show where that is. But he's going to the surrounding areas of the northeast part of the Mediterranean Sea. So he's doing ministry. That's not a surprise to us. We kind of figure wherever Paul is going, he's going to do ministry. There are a couple of important things, though. When he came to Jerusalem, he saw Peter, and he talked to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read this almost every week. We do it once a month in here. We do it every week in the chapel. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord and was entrusted the message of the gospel. And he tells us, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, right, does this sound familiar? He gave thanks and he broke the bread, and he took the cup. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood. Paul wasn't there for that. Right? Paul wasn't in the upper room. So where did he know that? How did he know that? Probably this visit. This visit with Peter. Peter entrusted to him some of the traditions that he had. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I received this saying that is trustworthy. This is the gospel, that Jesus came in accordance with the scriptures and died in accordance with the scriptures. We believe that that transfer of the gospel happened in this meeting with Peter. So he takes those messages, he goes into the area of Syria and Cilicia, and he starts to do ministry. We have another clue, and it comes in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, 23, this is the Jerusalem council. We'll get here in a couple of weeks. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders after this council and the whole church to choose men from among them. Saul and Barnabas are one of these people. And send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. We're going to see Silas all over the New Testament. And they said this in verse 23. Brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. One of the things that is curious about this passage is Nowhere in, the God, in, in Acts are we told that there are churches in Syria or Cilicia. Up until this point, we don't know of anybody that's gone to these places. There are no apostles from Jerusalem who have gone to Syria and Cilicia. So when we read this letter and it says to the churches who are in those areas, we have to assume who was planting those churches. Paul. Paul was planting those churches. That's clue number two as to what he was doing. There's a third clue, and it comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is one of my favorite passages. It's one of the most encouraging passages about Paul's autobiographical life. 
He says this. He's talking to the Corinthians about why he should be considered an apostle. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from these other things, there's the daily pressure on me for the anxiety for all the churches. Paul lived a really tough life. He lived an extremely tough life for the sake of the gospel. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But what does this provide us? Well, he says at the beginning, five times he received the 40 lashes minus one. Where have we seen this in the New Testament? We've seen this punishment before. Where do we see this? Who, who received this? Jesus. That's a Jewish punishment. Romans don't do that. The Jews do that. And so we know that Paul had to receive this at the hands of the Jews. Well, Paul didn't do any ministry with only Jews after the first missionary journey. And so if he had this happen to him five times, we we know that this had to happen in his early years. So he was being persecuted. He was causing controversy. That's going to follow Paul wherever he goes. Secondly, he was beaten three times with rods. This is a Roman punishment. We see this happen to Paul at Philippi later in the book of Acts, but we don't hear about the other two times. And scholars think, if that's the case, then this probably happened in his early years. Thirdly, he's been in prison many times. Up until this point when this letter would have been written, we only know of one imprisonment for Paul. So we're guessing that he's been put in prison in the 10 years since he left Jerusalem. Paul has been doing a lot of stuff. He has been planting churches. He has been being beaten. He has been doing all the things we're going to see him doing since he left Jerusalem. And so if we're going to sketch a brief timeline for Paul, he goes blind, he sees Jesus, he gets uh, to go to Damascus and he converts. Then it says he went to Arabia where he was taught by the Lord. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, he receives a commission. He receives the gospel. And for the next seven years, plus or minus, he goes out into the area of Syria and he starts to spread the gospel. And the word of him starts to travel. And Barnabas remembers that dynamo guy that had been doing ministry. I've got to get him and bring him back to Antioch. So he brings them back and they begin to teach And then the Lord calls them, I want to send you. I want to commission you. And they do it. Can you imagine, put yourself in the mind of the people of Antioch for a second. You've got this church that just started, and you have these two great teachers, Barnabas and Paul, and these other three guys who have risen up, and they're your pastors. And they have been leading you and teaching you, and they have prophetic gifts, and they're doing all these amazing things. And then you're worshiping one day, And God speaks and he says, hey, I want you to set aside these two guys for me and I'm going to send them to do ministry. We read this and we downplay it because these are Bible people. So of course they were obedient. You know, like that was no big deal for them. The Lord spoke and they were like, yes, Lord, amen, whatever you want, send those people away. But these people were not just Bible people. They're real people. They're real flawed people people with their own preferences. You know, there were several of these people who probably loved Paul's preaching and some of them who probably hated Paul's preaching. And there were some of them that loved to podcast Barnabas and some of them that didn't. And, you know, they had preferences just like we do. And even though they're in the Bible, we can't idealize them. We have to put ourselves in their position and say, what would this have felt like? It would have been a tremendous loss. 
It would have been a tremendous loss for them to have Paul and Barnabas leave. They didn't have any search firms. They, didn't, they probably weren't able to put together a committee to find a new pastor because where are you going to find one? You're the only church among the Gentiles. Maybe from Jerusalem. This was a dire situation for them. They were probably upset, but they made a commitment. Look at what it says at the end of this passage. In verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. They knew, the people in Antioch knew, that every resource that the Lord gives, you must hold with an open hand. With an open hand. They had these amazing teachers, prophets, and they knew that God had placed them in their church to be used for God's purposes, not just for their purposes. I wonder what it must have felt like for them to know that God was going to take them and do something but not know what it was. For instance, we read the book of Acts and we say, well, it's, the, it's a no-brainer. Send them. They're going to plant all these churches. The kingdom's going to grow. God's going to do this amazing work. But when you're living it, you don't know what God's going to do. You just know that things aren't going to be the way they were before. You just know that something that you loved is being taken away in hopes that God is going to use it. Last night I was up in Stillwater and I was worshiping at this thing called Overflow. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a student organization and it's a worship service and we're worshiping in there. And I was just thinking, I was looking around that room. We're singing the song, I Surrender. We're saying, like a rushing wind, Jesus, breathe within, have your way in me. And I'm wondering, what's that going to mean? You know, if God does have his way in us, it's going to mean discomfort sometimes. It's going to be letting go of things that we want or things that we desire or things that we're comfortable with. Or it's going to mean that things are going to happen outside of that room. Do you ever get the feeling when you're here, maybe on Sunday mornings, that things are great in this room? You come to church, the worship is good, the preaching is great, everything in here is fine. It's everything out there that is the problem. I get that feeling, and I work here. You come in and you say, God, when I'm here, everything is great, but what I have to go do out there, that's the problem. What those people in Antioch realized, though, was God, whether he gives, whether he takes, whether he moves, whether he commissions, whether he lingers, God is a good God, and he's building his kingdom across the world. And so the people in Antioch realized, we live with an open hand. We live with an open hand. Every good gift comes from God. And when he takes away one thing, he will give something else good. And we have the benefit of looking in hindsight, saying, It was the most amazing gift God could ever have given to take Paul and Barnabas from Antioch and send them out into the world. It was the most amazing thing he could have done. And so I want to ask this question of myself and of you guys. When was the last time you had to give something in hopes that God would do something for his kingdom? When was the last time you had to give up something or you had to change the way that you did something in hope that God was going to do something, but not really being able to see it? The story of Paul and Barnabas tells us, in those situations, you can trust him. In those situations, God is working for his glory and our good. God is taking things away not to upset us, but to grow us and to grow his kingdom. I love that lesson from Antioch. We have two guys 
in our ministry, in the, in the college ministry here at the church, we have two guys, and they are from Rwanda. We actually have a big population of Rwandan students. It's the most amazing blessing. It's a total God story how we got hooked in with them. But anyway, we have these two guys that are on our leadership team. And I was talking to them the other day, and one of the realities that we're having to deal with right now is that they're both going to graduate a year from now, and they're going to go back to Rwanda. And I love these guys. They're my two, two out, of, out of several really close people that I've done ministry with for years. Since we started this ministry, since we've gone to the campuses, since we've done things together, they have been there. And we're talking the other day, there's going to be a time in a year when they've got to leave. They've got to go home. They've got to plant churches. They've got to do ministry where they're from. And it's going to be a really sad day. And it's going to be a really happy day that God is going to take what we've done here and he's going to put it on the other side of the globe. And I wonder what he's doing in your life like that. I wonder what's coming disguised as an inconvenience that will lead to growing the kingdom of God. So there's a big change between verse 3 and verse 4. If you're following along, So, being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This is a cool moment. This is Paul setting out for the first time. So we've got a map here that's going to show us a little bit of what's going on. So down at the bottom we see Jerusalem, and up at the top we see Antioch. Antioch is down the river from a port, and so they go to Seleucia, which is the port for Antioch. They get on a boat, and they go to that island right in the middle called Cyprus. Does anybody remember who's from Cyprus? What's the connection? Who's from there? Barnabas. Barnabas is from there. He's going to his home. So he goes back, and they want to do ministry in his homeland. And so they go, and they start to do ministry there. They, just, they arrive at the first town, Salamis, and they work their way all across the island. And I want to pause for a second, because this is, a, this is going to be uh, something we see over and over and over again in Acts. You're going to see a lot of journeys to cities. You're going to see a lot of sermons. You're going to see a bunch of really cool stuff. And so to set that up, I want to, I want to just pause for a moment and kind of prime the pump for what's going to happen in Acts. So I'm asking this question this week as I'm reading this text. How was Paul so successful? How was Paul so successful. I've got a great quote that puts this in perspective. This is from a scholar named Roland Allen, and he says this. In little more than 10 years, St. Paul established the church in four provinces of the empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before AD 47, that's about right where we are in this passage, is right about the year 47, there were no churches in these provinces. Everywhere west of the, the eastern side of the Mediterranean, no churches. In 57, 10 years later, St. Paul could speak as if his work there was done. His work there was done and could plan extensive tours into the far west. This is in Romans. He talks about wanting to go to the end of the earth, which we think is Spain. He could speak as if he was going to take extensive tours into the west without anxiety, lest the churches which he had founded might perish in his absence for one of his guidance or support. It is amazing what Paul did in 10 years. What's the secret? What made Paul so successful? As we read about his journeys, we're gonna see three themes continue to pop up. And that's why I say, I wanna prime the pump a little bit today so that you know what you're looking for. When you're reading about him going into Philippi or Thessalonica or when he goes into Corinth, we need to be looking for the ways that Paul does ministry because they're extremely important for us. 
extremely important for the way that we do ministry in our own community. So there's three things that make Paul successful in Acts. Number one, his ability to do ministry in the largest cities of the empire. This is just amazing. It's just, it is amazing. He goes into the biggest cities in the Roman Empire and he does ministry. One of the things that you'll observe is that on his missionary journeys, he travels a lot at the beginning and a lot at the end. And in the middle, he spends a lot of time in community. He spends a year here, a year and a half there, three years there, and he hopes that by planting himself in cities, that the message of the gospel will trickle out into the countryside. That where he goes and where converts are made, they will go home and take the gospel with them. And then he sends messengers, Timothy, Silas, Epaphras, Epaphroditus, all to these places to do ministry there. So his number one thing is he plants himself in the largest cities in the empire, and he does ministry that radiates across the whole land. Number two, he has an amazing ability to mature new converts. He has an unbelievable ability. If you're looking in Acts, in chapter 16, he picks up Timothy. He meets him for the first time in 16, 1 through 5, and he converts, he follows Paul for a while. It's not very long later that he sends Timothy to go sort out problems in a church. Can you imagine that? You're 18 years old or however old Timothy was. You see this guy, Paul, you hear the gospel, you start to follow him around, he gets beaten, you get beaten, you get thrown in jail, and he says, hey, I'm gonna send you back to this town. Um, can you go ahead and put things in order in the church? A year, maybe a year, that's all you have under your belt. And he's sending you on this errand. Paul was an amazing talent developer. What do we call that? What's the church word for that? Talent development in the Bible is called what? Discipleship. Make disciples. Teach them to obey. Help them to follow Jesus their whole life. Paul was an amazing disciple maker. In the New Testament, we actually see about 100 people that are connected to Paul. The end of Romans is a, is a huge spot. The end of all of his letters, we see about 100 people who are attached to Paul. Sometimes we see Paul as this lone wolf kind of guy. He doesn't need anybody. He's rough and tumble. He gets taken out of the city to die, and he shakes the dust back and goes back in. But Paul was a community guy. His power was a lot in the fact that he built a lot of really close gospel relationships, and then he let them go. He was an amazing disciple maker. Number three. He had an incredible ability to endure persecution. This guy, for everything else we can say for him, he had an amazing, amazing constitution. He was tough. He was really tough. In the story we're about to read, a lot of scholars think that Paul contracts malaria. And that's why he decides to go up to Pisidian Antioch, which we'll talk about in a second. Instead of going the way to the west that they had planned, he goes to the highlands because he's trying to get over this illness that he has. He's beaten. We already read that passage. He has an amazing ability to endure persecutions, but the book of Acts is careful to tell us that that has nothing to do with his physical abilities. It has everything to do with his joy in the Holy Spirit, which we'll actually conclude with tonight. So I want you to keep these things in mind. These are the three keys to Paul's success. He goes to the biggest cities in the empire, and he converts people. He makes talent grow. He makes disciples. He sends them out. And then he endures persecution like a champion. In verse 4, we start to get a picture of what this process looks like. Read with me if you would. Verse 4, he says, So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. That's the island 
When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. He's going to become a big character later in the, in the book of Acts. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, it's only about 65 miles across this island. But they worked their way through all the towns. And when they had gone across, they came with us upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. This is a great description. We're going to unpack this in a minute. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, that's Bar-Jesus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, he will be Paul for the rest of Acts. And, and one of the comments I want to make here is there's a lot of stock put into the name change. And I think a lot of that is really, really meaningful. Like we see a dramatic conversion in Paul. He goes from Saul to Paul, Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. One of the logistical reasons that his name changes is because this is his Roman name. His Roman name from birth is Paul. His Hebrew name is Saul. And most Hebrews that lived in a Roman world had two names. And Luke, I think, identifies him as Paul because they have just entered a Roman province. Cyprus is a Roman province. It's governed by a proconsul who we just met. His name is also Paul, which is kind of unique. So it says, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm about to start verse 10. He said, you son of the devil. Wow. You enemy of all righteousness. This is the first thing we've seen Paul say since we saw him in chapter 9. He hasn't changed. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? How to win friends and influence people. Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So let's add a couple of details to this story. They arrive on the east side of Cyprus to the major port. They walk across the island about 65 miles, and they come to the seat of the Roman government. So Roman provinces were governed in one of two ways. They were either governed by a proconsul, which is what this is, or they were governed by a king from that area. That's what we have in Judea. So on the one hand, you have Herod, who is a Judean in some ways, and he's governing that area. But in some areas, like Cyprus, the government wants to be a little bit more in control of what's going on. And so they send a Roman governor, a proconsul, to manage the area. And that's the person that he meets. He meets a Roman prominent citizen. In fact, this family that Sergius Paulus is from is a really prominent family in Rome. He's got relatives that are ruling all over the place. For 50 years, plus or minus, this family is one of the most prominent families in the Roman Empire. He meets this guy, and this guy has a very curious sidekick. His name, he has two names, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, and Elamus, which Luke tells us can be translated to mean magician. A cool fact about this is the word that's used to, to describe him is magi. The word that we get, magi, the magi that came from the east, this is the same word. He is a sorcerer of some kind. He is an astrologer. He is a wise man. And it was not uncommon at that time to have somebody like this in your court. They were dazzled by the things that these guys could do. But this guy has an interesting quality. It tells us that he is Jewish and he's a false prophet. 
How about that for an introduction? They meet this guy. He's a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. Paul later calls him a son of the devil. They talk. Paul has some words to say to him because he's opposing the word of the Lord. What's really happening here is it says that Sergius Paulus is trying to hear the gospel. And Elamus, because he doesn't want to be deposed, is keeping him from hearing the gospel. And Paul does something amazing. He says some things to him, and then he strikes him blind. If you're remembering in, the, in Acts, we have seen somebody else do this exact same thing. They're opposing the work of God. They come into contact with the Lord. They go blind, and many people convert. Do you remember Paul. Paul is the one. He comes, he is opposing the Lord, God strikes him blind, and he goes into the town, he's being led by the hand, and many people are converted because of it. I wonder if Paul was having deja vu at this moment. I wonder if he pulls him aside, he's like, I've been through the same thing, man. He's like, if you would just convert, this would be a lot easier. But instead of Elamus converting, the Roman proconsul converts. Sergius Paulus converts, which is a huge deal. This is an amazing, amazing advance for them. He converts because of the wonders that Paul had, did, had, had done. Now, in verse 13, Luke is like, we don't have time for that, okay? We, we got this guy converted, but i got to get you to other things. And so they set sail from the island. Let's go back to that map real quick if we can. So if you'll notice from the left side, the west side of that island, they sail up to a place called Perga. This is a major port. They're starting to get into some big Roman areas, and that's the point where they decide to change directions. Paul and his companions, verse 13, set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. John, Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. John Mark is a really cool character in the Bible. And I'm not going to go into it because he's going to appear in Acts later. So I'll let my dad talk to you about him. But he jets. And part of the reason that he jets is because between Perga, which is on the sea, and Antioch, which is up at the top, there is a giant mountain range. It's called the Taurus Mountains. There is a giant mountain range. And it was notorious for being dangerous. In fact, about 100 years later, the Romans are going to have so much trouble getting their trade through this route because of bandits that they're going to send an army into this mountain range and it takes them years to track these bandits down. I mean, this is a dangerous, dangerous route. I don't blame John Mark for wanting to go home to mama's house in Jerusalem and abandoning this missionary journey. But Paul and Barnabas push on. They go 100 miles over a mountain range through a notoriously dangerous area to another Antioch. Are you getting tired of Antiochs yet? This is Pisidian Antioch. It's one of 16 cities in the ancient world named Antioch. Can you imagine trying to send a letter? Antioch was named after a Seleucid ruler 300 years before this. And the residue of their kingdom was everywhere. So you see Antiochs all over the ancient world. But this is not the Antioch they came from. This is not the Antioch where the church is. This is a new area. They go into town, and they do what Paul liked to do. They go to the synagogue, they sat down, and after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, and he's going to give this speech. I want to just point out two cool things. Two really cool things in this passage. Number one, look at verse 
15. They say, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement, this seems pretty, there's nothing special about this. But actually, this is a term for a type of speech. And it's important because there's one other place in the New Testament where this word, this phrase, is used. And it's in the book of Hebrews. At the end of the book of Hebrews, the author tells his audience, thank you for listening to my word of encouragement. It's a type of speech. And what Paul is about to give, this word of encouragement, is the same kind of speech that the book of Hebrews is. It tells us a lot about how the book of Hebrews functions because of this word here in Acts. The second really interesting thing is Paul and Barnabas roll into town and they're giving the sermon on Saturday in the synagogue. The people of the first century had a very strange custom. If you were the new person in the synagogue, you got to give the sermon. Can you imagine if we still did that? Like, I think it's bad enough when you go places and they make all the new people stand up and you're like, no, I've been here for years. You know, I'm, I'm not a new person. They went beyond that. Not only did the new person have to stand up and introduce themselves, they would ask the new person if they would like to give a sermon. Well, Paul is about as prepared as anybody to give a sermon. In fact, he was banking on them. He's going to exploit this everywhere. He is going to exploit this little rule everywhere he goes. He will go to the synagogue and they will say, hey, you guys are new. Do you want to give a word of encouragement? And he will say, in fact, I do. And he will share the gospel. And they'll get mad and they'll take him out of town. They'll try and kill him. He, he had this system down to a science. Okay, I can just imagine him explaining this to Timothy. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into the synagogue and they're going to say, does anybody have a word of encouragement? And we're going to say yes. And then I'm going to present these three points and they're going to try and kill us. But some people are going to convert. It's an amazing plan. He does this everywhere. He goes in, he tells them about Jesus. Now, this speech that he gives, if you're looking in your Bibles with me, is really, really long. It's really long. And it's a really great speech. I want you to read it this week. What I'm going to do is I'm going to outline it. I'm going to point to a few of the things in here that show us what Paul is saying. It has three major parts. This speech has three major parts. It's, there's some unique things about this speech. This is the only full speech of Paul's that we get in the book of Acts. Every other time he tries to speak, he gets interrupted. This is the only full speech that we get of Paul's. In the first section, he's going to sketch Israelite history. We've already seen this in the speech of Stephen and in the speech in Acts chapter 2 that Peter gives. He's going to trace what God has done through Israelite history to be kind and gracious to the Israelites. An interesting thing about this speech is there are 10 active verbs in this section. So there are 10 verbs of motion, of action, of giving, and in nine of them, God is the subject. In nine of these 10 verbs, God is the subject. What Paul's trying to do is he's trying to say, God has been active in history. He has been trying to show you who he is. He has been trying to bless you. The verbs that we see in here are give, provide, love, show. God has been doing something in your history and all of it culminates in his son, Jesus Christ. He sketches their history. He tells them that Jesus is the Christ. Then from verses 26 through 37, he gives them proof that Jesus is the Christ. You'll see, if you look with me, 26 through 37 has three quotes from the Old Testament. Paul starts out by proving that he is an apostle. 
and by proving that God has sent him. And then he proves to them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He quotes Psalms. He ends up quoting Habakkuk. He quotes Isaiah to show them all the prophets have been moving towards this. Then in the last part, Paul is a good preacher. He gives an invitation. In the second half of the speech, from basically verse 40 through the end of the speech, he gives an invitation. He tells them, you need to respond to what God has done in history. Either repent and trust in God or stay in your sins. There's a really important line. If you would look at verse 38, Paul's concluding his message here, and I put this up here. We can read, uh, we can look on with me. In verse 38, he says this Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is the point of the sermon. This is the one point that he wants them to respond to. Through Jesus, you can be forgiven of everything you've ever done. Through Jesus, he can do what the law could never do for you. The law could tell you what your sin was, but it couldn't make you sinless. Jesus came to make you free. He came to set you free from the law. He came to set you free from sin. He came to set you free from the baggage that you have. Jesus came for freedom. And he says, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to respond to it or not? The response is probably not what Paul thought. If you look down in verse 44, the next Sabbath, all of the city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, one of the things we know about Pisidian Antioch is there's a small population of Jews and a giant population of Gentiles. So if the whole city was coming or a large portion of the city was coming to hear them, most of them were who? Who would the people have to be? Gentiles. Well, this made the Jews really angry. They could not believe in a God who could allow Gentiles to be saved. We've been talking about that in this series, that the Jews had a really hard time believing that God would allow Gentiles. If you look in verse 47, he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And they totally failed at that. The Jews had totally failed at that. So the Gentiles respond, they come, they want to hear more of this, and this makes the Jews unbelievably mad. Look at verse 45. But then the Jews saw the crowds, and they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. So they're standing up in the middle of his sermon, and they're contradicting him, and they're telling him that the Gentiles cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, it's necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I made you a light to the Gentiles. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were rejoicing, and they began glorifying God. And the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, they began to believe. We've seen this phrase twice in the book of Acts, in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, when God added thousands of people. And he's doing that now in the Gentiles. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, they cannot get over this, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. But what did they do? They shook off the dust from their feet, and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. A major riot takes place in this city. 
The Jews are upset. The Gentiles are converting. They're shouting at Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are shouting at them. And God starts to multiply the people who are trusting in Christ. But it gets so crazy that Paul and Barnabas actually have to leave this city. And we don't hear about this city very much again. We don't know exactly what happened in this church, but we do know that there was a church here. That the people that heard that that day, the Gentiles that heard that they could be forgiven of everything they'd done if they would put their trust in Jesus, they stuck it out. They endured persecution from the Jews. They built a church together. Their community was totally changed. Paul's work had taken root. And then we see a cool reaction. Paul and Barnabas driven out of town. Verse 52. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's an amazing sentence. Because if this had happened to me, I would be filled with a lot of things, neither of them being joy or the Holy Spirit. I mean, I was on an airplane a couple months ago. And you know, they give you this promise on airplanes nowadays that you can get free Wi-Fi. Has anybody ever been on a plane that had free Wi-Fi? I haven't. Every time they promise it to me, the free stuff is broken, but you can pay for it if you'd like. It's only like $23 for the next hour. And so I was really upset because uh, I was on this airplane. I wanted the free Wi-Fi, but I didn't get it. So my life is terrible. And I'm, I, I noticed that there's a guy up in front of me who is watching the game I was wanting to watch on his computer. So I'm like sneakily loosening my seatbelt on the plane because the light is on. And I'm leaning up and I'm watching his computer from my seat on the airplane. And just as this game is getting good, there's like two minutes left in the game, and I'm, I'm wanting to watch the rest of this game. He switches to some show I could not care less about. And I'm like, oh, my night is ruined. You know, I wanted to see the end of this. I'm trying, you know, I have my phone in airplane mode. I can't get an update. And it, all of a sudden, I, I just had this moment, and, and it, just, it just dawned on me. I was like, why are you actually upset about this? I was like, I've got six reasons I'm upset about this. The free Wi-Fi didn't work. The guy changed his thing. Like, my seatbelt is too tight. Like, all of these things I'm wondering about, why, this, why would this happen to me at this point? And I said this flashback. I was like, what percentage of the world has this problem? Like, how many people in the world could you line up with these specific problems? Not many. And I'm like, here I am on an airplane, not filled with joy or the Holy Spirit. Here these guys are getting kicked out of town, They've, they've had a riot start. It's their first try at planting a church together, and it went terribly wrong. They get kicked out, and they are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. This is a chorus in the book of Acts. We're going to see this sentence happen a bunch in the book of Acts. One of the things they used to do in ancient documents is they would put verbal clues as the end of a section. So if you're listening to this, imagine we're all sitting here, and we just got this book, Acts, and I'm reading it out loud to you because none of you have a copy. I'm reading it to you. What they would do in the cadence of it is they would put these repetitive sentences in. And the sentences would remind us of things that had happened before and things that were going to come. And for this particular sentence, we've seen it before in chapter 5. And what happens before is the disciples are persecuted. Remember in chapter 5, persecution breaks out like crazy against the church. But the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And what happens after that? The church multiplies like crazy. That's the chorus that's being sung here in this book. When you see the phrase, they had joy in the Holy Spirit, you know God is about to do something amazing. You know that's about to happen, and you're waiting for it, and you're listening for it. 
there's a theme in the book of Acts that I want to leave you with. And so um, this is not the end of the book of Acts, but this is the end of a chapter. And so I want to look back at it a little bit. There's a sense in Luke's writings, both in Acts and in the gospel, that everyone in the future will be able to benefit by looking back at how things happened in the beginning. Luke believed, the author Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, believed that every church problem that would happen from here on out could be helped if you would just remember what God did in the beginning. So he couldn't have imagined that we would be sitting here in the year 2016 listening to his his gospel and his book, Acts being read, but he knew wherever Christians are, wherever they find themselves, whatever problems they have, they will be helped if they just remember what God did to get this whole thing started. And we, as people who are reading this, look at this and we say, these people were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. These people in these situations with the same God and the same spirit that we have, were filled with joy after they were beaten and kicked out of a city. This week, a couple of days ago, uh, Barna, the Barna Group, they're a research company, put out a book. David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons wrote this book, and it's called Good Faith. And the subtitle, this is, a, this is an amazing subtitle. The subtitle on this book is Being a Christian When Society Thinks You Are Irrelevant and Extreme. 2016, it's going to be a best-selling book, I know it. Good faith, being a Christian, when society thinks you are irrelevant and extreme. Does that resonate with anybody? They they furnished a statistic in the first chapter of this book. 45% of non-religious adults think evangelical Christians are extremists. 45% of non-religious people think evangelical Christians are extremists. I think that's a really incredible opportunity. It's a really incredible opportunity. What if people could look back at us and say they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit? It's easy for us to say, oh, Paul, he was a super apostle. He got kicked out of town and he was full with joy in the Holy Spirit. Or we look at the early martyrs who say they were hung on crosses and eaten by wild animals, but they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. They were persecuted and marginalized and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But it's really difficult for us to say in our present circumstances, they were viewed as extreme and irrelevant, but they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. But the thing is, we don't get to pick our opposition. We don't get to pick what society thinks about us. But if you're trusting in Christ, you do get to pick how you respond. And I just wonder, I just, I just hope that as that percentage grows, as we continue to be marginalized in ways that are nothing like the early church, but are so important right now, I wonder if this will be our time to be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Maybe they will say about us, they were mocked and maligned in the public square, but they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Maybe we say they were called hateful and bigoted because they believed the Bible about family and about marriage, but they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They were considered stupid and medieval for believing that the words of an ancient book were the words of God, but they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They were persecuted socially. They were ostracized. Their rights may be or may not be infringed upon, but no matter what happened, they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And many, many people were added to their number. That's the amazing responsibility that we have. The chorus for them was something terrible happened, 
they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, God added many people to their number. The opportunity for us, no matter what happens to us, is to be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, and God adds many people to our number. I pray that that's true for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in any opportunity, you are working something that we can't understand, we can't imagine, but we know is for your glory and our good. Lord, we thank you that as we read your word, we understand that you have been working through different places across the world, different people, different methods to show us that you can work in our lives. Lord, you're convincing us now that just as your apostles that we venerate and, and, and we love and we trust, they have the same spirit that we do. Lord, I thank you that they had the same work before them that we do. And God, I thank you that you give the same courage and strength that you gave them to us. Lord, help us to be people of joy and the Holy Spirit in our community. Lord, we don't know what is expected. Lord, we don't know if it will be bad. We don't know if it will be good, but we do know that you'll be with us. God, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would build up this group of people this week. Lord, I pray that you would bring opportunities for your gospel to be preached, for your word to be shared in their communities and their households. Lord, I pray that you would transform them every day to look more like your son. Lord, we praise you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you, guys.